Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello and welcome to our program. I'm Daniel Strain and I'm here with my co-host B.T. Newberg. Hello. We also have with us today special guest Jennifer Hancock. Jennifer is the author of several books about humanism and founder of Humanist Learning Systems. By sharing her pragmatic humanist approach to living life fully and intentionally, Jennifer has transformed the lives of those who have been touched by her work. She challenges people to think about questions who they are, what they are, and more importantly, how they want to be. She is one of the few individuals in America who is actually raised as a humanist, and she brings her delightful sense of humor, creativity, and compassion combined with a no-nonsense approach to all of her work and her coaching. To learn more about Jennifer Hancock, you can visit her website at jen, J-E-N, dash, Hancock, H-A-N-C-O-C-K, Dot com. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. And if they want to find me, just type in Jen the Humanist, they'll find me. Oh, okay. That's convenient. <laughs> Not that many Jens, I guess. <laughs> well, there's only really one Jen the Humanist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's out there doing this kind of work and everything. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on today. I'm, one of the things that first uh, made me realize I wanted to reach out to you um, with the work the society was doing is that there's so many people uh, in the humanist movement in the, that are focused on the uh, criticism of other belief systems and that sort of thing um, and the skepticism and all that sort of thing. And But there's not very many people, very many humanists who are focused as much as you are on actual humanism on the positive aspects of humanism um i often as a reminder to myself i say okay what would we be talking about if there wasn't some other belief system out there to to uh you know criticize what would be the things that we would promote and uh i really enjoy that you promote happiness and well-being and um so i just want to thank you for that for being out there and doing that kind of work yeah, I think I think that's a function of me having grown up without religion. So my humanism is not a reaction to religion. Hmm. It's organic. So for me, it's I don't I'm not fighting against something or shedding something and fighting within myself against something that I'm letting go of. I just am like to me humanism is just about being a good person because that's all it's ever been for me. Right? There's not it's not a reaction to something. It, it just is how you are. Yeah, yeah it, that's really interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, too, about being raised as a humanist. I think that's really key. And um, I wasn't raised as a humanist, but I got over the um, resentment of my religion. Uh, I, I got over that pretty quickly. And at this point, I'm just like, you know what? Other people can believe whatever they want. I don't care. I just want to learn how to live a great life and do that yeah. without the woo. So how do we do that? Um, right. It looks I, like that's where you were coming from from the beginning. Yeah, I, I remember being at a bar one time with a bunch of humanists, and one of my friends was asking me, so you really don't care what other people believe? I'm like, no. 
because you really <laughs> don't care. I'm like, why would I care what other people believe? He goes, oh, so you really are a humanist. I'm like, well, of course I'm, <laughs> like, not, I'm not an atheist light. I'm not a positive atheist. I really am a humanist. I really, the free, whole freedom of belief thing is intrinsic to everything I, I really as long as you're not promoting the killing of people or the harming of people, I really don't care what you believe. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because um, my wife, Julie, has, uh, you know, she was telling me not too long ago that um, it was kind of a revelation to her when she realized that it, it's not so much about the beliefs. It's about how do you live your life and what kinds of things you want to focus on. Um, and, I, and I totally agree with that. At the same time, um, there does seem to be some aspect of um, having a healthy skepticism, a critical approach, um, kind of not being, not just believing anything that blows by. Uh, it and that that seems to be at least one aspect of having a happy, productive life. Oh, it's it's critical. How do you make decisions if you can't tell what's true or false? Right. I mean, every morality requires you to understand what is true and false. And you cannot do that without critical thinking and moral reasoning requires reasoning, <laughs> you know, and that requires critical thinking to do well. So the skepticism, I don't know how you can be sure that you're doing right. I mean, you can mean well, but you're not necessarily doing well if you're everything you're doing is based on a lie. So critical thinking is absolutely central to how we solve problems effectively. I mean, we can say we want to solve a problem, but unless we're reality-based, we're not solving problem, period. Can you, can you explain what you meant by based on a lie, That just for our listeners? Well, you know, okay, so let me give you an example that has nothing to do with religion, yeah. all right? Um, one, one of my first humanist conferences up in Washington, D.C., we had a guy from the Tabula Raza Institute, and he was talking about just war theory. And we were looking at just war as a secular idea, a non-religious secular. Is there such a thing as a just war for humanists? Yeah. And we all agreed on what the principles would be of that, right? And then we looked at specific conflicts. And in as groups, like small little five or six people groups, we couldn't decide whether any conflict rose to the level of just war because what we knew about that conflict differed from person to person. Mm -hmm. Right. And whenever you have a conflict, there's a chance that someone's lying about why they're in the conflict okay. and lying about the other person in the conflict. So so it really comes down to who do you believe? Right. And that happens all the time. It happens in politics. Politicians, all politicians lie. Who's lying the most? Which which newspapers and news outlets are more reliable than others? That's all critically important, because if you don't know who's really telling you the truth, you're making a mistake and that mistake is going to have consequences for a lot of people down the line if we're talking about politics or we're talking about war. So understanding what is true and false and getting to the root and knowing, having a good, a good confidence that what you believe is true is actually true mm -hmm. is going to go a long way in any decision you make, whether it's about war or it's about what kind of shampoo to use. It doesn't really matter. All of your decisions are made better by being reality-based. Yeah, and that form of skepticism cuts across the board, whether you're talking about supernaturalism or anything to do with humanism or atheism or, or any kind of sector right. of life you end up in, yeah. And this sure. is why I get so frustrated when people only use critical thinking to debunk religion. It's like, right. that's not the point. That's not the point. Like, if that's all you're using it for, 
And it also has to do with skill. Yeah. And it also has to do with generally what is your focus? Are you using these tools as a way to tell other people what they're doing wrong, or are you actually using the tools to uh, right. look, examine yourself and right. examine your own life? And to me, that's kind of the, the whole core of a, of a spiritual practice is that you are uh, you're looking at you're starting with the person in the mirror right. rather than telling everybody else in the world how they should be. And that's that's why I prefer the term free thought is because free thought to me implies my thought, mm-hmm. right? I can't control whether anybody else is thinking the truth or not, but I can challenge my own thinking to make sure that I'm thinking well. And so that's why I kind of like the term. I I, just, I would describe myself more as a free thinker. One of the skills of free thought being critical thinking rather than critical thinking. I don't critical thinking as a skill in and of itself has to be directed somewhere philosophically to be useful and for me that philosophy is humanism via free thought which then focuses why I'm behaving I'm using critical thinking as a tool you know it's not just to any old end it's a very specific end and it's to make sure my thinking is good I also love how in uh, both your your books and your works, how you are one of the people who are using the word compassion, which is another aspect of humanism. And um, there's an interesting relationship between truth and compassion. You know, um, I was reading in another book a long time ago. I can't remember the source, unfortunately, but the author was making a good point about how truth can sometimes be brutality if it's not uh, being delivered with compassion. Right, especially truths that aren't truths but people think are truths yeah. <laughs> and, and need everybody else to believe with them. That becomes very, very brutal. Um, truth is kind of a weird subject because it's so subjective, even when we have our facts straight, right? Um, two different people can look at the exact same fact and come to completely different conclusions about what those facts mean. Sure. Right? Um, so someone's truth might not necessarily be true for another person, even though the facts underlying it are true. So that's the first problem. I think the other thing that compassion does for me in my practice is it helps me to be humble and to recognize that my truth, based on my facts, uh, could, not my facts, but facts that are actually reality facts, but my truth about those facts, um, might not be the only truth that could be derived from those facts. and understanding that the compassion helps me remember that um do i do this well all the time um no (laughs) like i don't want anybody viewing this saying oh she's you know no i i can cuss people out on occasion when i get really freaked out and scared you know um that happens you know but that's the ideal that i aspire for and that's what i remind myself when i'm in those moments when i'm not being my best I think that's really important. Speaking of ideals, um, do you do you have role models, or or what do you hold up for yourself as a vision of what you would like to be? Because that's something that uh, I um, I don't I don't know if there's any one like good role model out there within the atheist and humanist community that I would just uh, leap to. I mean, everybody's got their own, but. Does, when you mention uh-huh. ideals, I mean, what, is, what does that bring to mind for you? 
my parents and my sister and my brother. Right. You know, and and some of my friends. You know, in those moments when I really needed grounding, and they're there to help ground me. That to me is, and I'm going to get emotional, but that to me is the ideal, mm-hmm. is I can't necessarily be grounded on my own. I do need people around me to help ground me when I'm like freaking out, right? And my family has always done that for me. And, you know, every member of my family has done that for me. And I hope I've done that for them too. So I don't necessarily, and my friends too, so I don't necessarily look to big heroes mm-hmm. for my role models. And it might just be one thing that one aspect of one person's personality that I think, I think that's a really good way of approaching this particular difficult emotion or whatever it is. And I'll try to emulate that. And, you know, what a friend did in their trauma or whatever it is. So I I don't need big heroes, right? I need the everyday heroes, you know, ex-boyfriends who said something profound once that really... (laughs) you know, (laughs) twisted my thinking in a really good way, right? So it's those human interactions with real humans that have helped me overcome the difficulties I've had in my life that are my role models. And that's an interesting part of humanism as well, is that um, uh, in humanism, there's not any gurus or official uh, infallible authority figures or anything like that. So we're all students learning together. Right. Exactly. I think that ties in with what you said about the humility thing. And uh, I think it's it's very important, too, um, especially uh, with us when we're talking about uh, things like spirituality, which is easily misunderstood, uh, that I often have to, um, when I'm speaking or writing, I have to uh, remind myself to remind the audience that I'm not any kind of authority or guru or anything like that. Uh, we're just fellow students who feel like we should all be sharing with one another what wisdom we can find wherever it may be. Exactly. And I always think it's funny when someone feels bad about disagreeing with me. Like, or, or they, they disagree with me and I think I'm going to be mad about it. <laughs> and I'm always and I'm thinking I'm surprised more people don't disagree with me because I'm really opinionated <laughs> but you know I mean that's just you know I, I think my ideal as a humanist is to learn from those disagreements what is what it is I don't know that they know do I always succeed with that no you know but that's the ideal and you've gotten into some really uh, specific practical advice, like um, your book, The B- Bully Vaccine. Um, you had a lot of response to that, it seemed to me. Um, yeah, I'm still um, getting response from that. <laughs> okay, so what The Bully Vaccine is, for the audience who doesn't know yet, is um, it's a science-based, humanist-based approach to the problem of bullying. So how, how does a humanist go about solving a problem, Right. Well, we're going to use science and compassion and personal responsibility, the hallmarks of the humanist approach to life, right? Science-based, you know, reason-based, compassion-based responsibility. And it turns out when you use science, we know from behavioral science how to get unwanted behaviors to stop. So why don't we apply that to the problem of bullying, which is a behavior we don't want? And when you apply it, you find out, well, in order to apply it, you have to be compassionate because the only way to be calm is to care and not care about yourself, but care about the other person. It's like one of those really 
counterintuitive things. When we're mm -hmm. hurt, we want it to be about us. But when we make it not about us, but about the other person, that's when we start responding in a way that will actually fix the situation. And that's fabulous because it ties in well with the humanist approach. So we've got the science. The science requires us to be compassionate in order to work. And then it takes responsibility. This is not someone else's job to fix. This is my job to fix. And I can fix it, which is empowering for the individual. You're not telling someone else, hey, get this other person to fix your problem for you. You're telling kids, you can do this. Here's exactly what you need to do it. And you can be successful if you do it. And you have support. But you have to do it. And that's all the hallmarks of humanism right there in one solution. And guess what? It works. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let, and yeah, let, let, let's bring this to a, an actual situation. Then let's imagine, uh, let's imagine that we're on a, the playground. Um, uh, let's, let's say that we observe, uh, two little kids. One of is bullying the other. Um, we're adults or wh whatever age you are that's listening for listeners. Um, wh what would you recommend in that situation? How do you, how do you approach bullying in a way that's different than okay, what's so already out there? What the adult should do is teach both of them because what's going to happen is one kid's it, it'll look like a conflict, right? He said, she said, mm -hmm. and you accept that it might very well be a conflict because you don't really know. And you say, if this person does this in the future, here's how I want you to respond. And if they keep doing it, here's what I want you to respond. And here's how I want you to report it to me. Right. And you tell both kids the same thing. All right. And you treat them both as if they're victims because you don't really know until the next part happens. All right. And that's the beauty of the compassion part, right? You don't have to choose sides. You, by not choosing sides, you fix the problem. You give them both the same information about what they need to do to stop this from happening and how you want them to report it in the future and that they need to report it in the future so that you can help them by creating consequences. And as they do this, the behavior gets solved. The kid who's being bullied, if one of the kid is being bullied, they'll do this behavior. It'll trigger response in the bully. The bully will respond to that in a way that will make it more obvious that they're the problem and make it easier for the teacher to handle it. But you're doing it in all cases to help both children learn the skills they need to deal with whatever the underlying problem is in a more constructive and socially acceptable and more effective way. So you're, you're teaching the kids the skills they need. You're not solving it for them. You're helping them solve it by learning the skills they need. And yes, reporting a problem when it's beyond your capacity to handle it is an important skill. I mean, how many people have mental health problems and don't go to a professional, right? They don't seek out help. And one of the reasons for that is throughout their entire life, whenever they've sought help, they've probably not gotten it. Yeah, I really like how... Um uh, not just this topic, but all of your advice, you, you really focus in on where the rubber meets the road. Right. Um, there's a lot of humanist writing that is that does stay in the very abstract or the philosophical level. And so it's nice to see the real practical application. When you, uh, uh, when you and I talked about, you know, our topics for today, you mentioned uh, self-help without woo. So... Right. I guess um, we should probably identify for the audience, what is woo and um, how do you recognize it and what's the problems with it? How do you avoid it? All that kind of thing. Yeah. All what right, does so it mean for self-help? Uh, that was a little like, hmm, made me think for self-help. Oh, what would woo okay, be? Okay. So 
Wu is all the pseudoscience, uh, pseudo uh, theological non-science, everything that sounds sciencey but isn't science at all. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, okay. So when we're trying, let's back up to the real problem. We have a problem. We want to solve it. We have a limited amount of resources, times, and attention that we can put into this problem. So we need to make sure that whatever solution we choose is going to give us the best chance of success. That requires us to know what will actually work. Okay, and that requires us to know what's true and what's not true, and that requires science, right? Because that's the best tool we have for figuring out what's true and not true. Now, when we back up a little bit, we find people with all sorts of problems. Maybe they have gut problems, maybe they have a mental health issue. What It doesn't really matter what the problem is, but they've got a problem and they're seeking help for it. And they come across someone who's peddling something that sounds sciencey, but isn't really science. And they invest in that, thinking that this will help them solve their problem. The problem is it won't because it's not science, it's pseudoscience. And that that's what we call woo. And the danger of woo in the self-help field is that it prevents people from solving their problems. All right, Any time and money you invest on something that's not real is not going to solve your problem, and it's time and money wasted not solving your problem. You're solving a proxy problem, and or worse, nothing. All right. So the, the self-help field, by and large, it's a really interesting, I mean, it's like a several billion dollar industry every year, right? And the foundations of that are humanist. Humanistic psychologists, Maslow, uh, Carl Kuhn, all these people, they're the foundation, Carl Rogers, they're all the foundation of what almost every coach uses. And you look at motivational coaches and they're quoting humanists. And it's fabulous. But then there's all this woo in there. So they're, they're, they're using humanism, but I would call it humanism light. It's humanism without the skepticism. Mm. Because if there was skepticism, people would not be buying the crystals. They would not be buying, you know, the, yeah. the colon cleansers, like as if your colon needs cleansing. You know, yeah. whatever it is, they wouldn't be buying it and then people wouldn't have a business. But th there are self-help people out there who are very frustrated with the when I had a coach ask me about a month ago, you know, how do I help my clients who are wedded to woo, really, really into the woo, how do I wean them off of that so that they can be successful? Hmm. Right? So there's coaches out there that are skeptical and want to do well and want to rid, rid the self-help world. So the question becomes, well, how do we help people who are wedded to woo wean off of it within the self-help field? Hmm. Because the self-help field is filled with woo. And it's hurting people. It's not harmless. It's hurting people because it's preventing them from solving their problems. In some cases, it's preventing them from going to a doctor. It might be preventing them from going to a, a, a psychologist who could really help them. That's all harmful. It's not harmless. So learning how and, and working within the self-help field to bring a full-bodied humanism, not humanism light, but all of humanism, including the skepticism, which is central to the problem solving, into the world of self-help, I think we can do a tremendous amount of good by helping people actually solve their problem, and we can wean them off woo at the same time. And there's an interest in it in the in the self-help community within certain sections of it. Right. Yeah, and I, I think being very uh, compassionate toward the uh, people to whom we're talking is the key because what I see happen often is this this bashing approach that causes them to raise their shields and right. shut down communication and then there's no communication whatsoever and no chance of anybody increasing understanding on either side. 
Um, right, exactly. And that's, that's the problem with the, like my friend who was asking me, well, how do you help people understand that the woo is preventing them from moving forward while not dashing their belief in the woo? That's the problem, right? And it, that does require compassion. It has to, you have to understand what the role is of woo in their life and respect that because it's placebic, right? You have to respect the placebic effect that it gives to people in helping them lower their stress while still helping them understand it's not helping them solve their problem. And that's a very tricky game to play, but coaches don't have the luxury of being bombastic about this because if they're bombastic, they lose the client and they don't help the client. Ultimately, they fail to help the client. And for me, my metric of whether I've solved the problem is whether I've solved the problem. Mm. I don't need to be emotionally right. I don't need to be seen as right. I don't need to win the argument. What I need is to actually fix the problem. And I'm willing to subvert my ego. And I know a lot of people say I'm, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a big ego, but I'm willing to subvert it in order to achieve my objective. All right. And I think that's what we need to kind of understand as humanists who are skeptical is that the bombastic approach to telling people they're wrong doesn't help the people we're trying to help at all. And if we're going to be compassionate, we can help them. We can actually help them wean off. And that's it. It's weaning them off, not making them go, go cold turkey, which almost never works because unless they're willing to go cold turkey, they're not going cold turkey. Yeah. Right. This is not like smoking where you can just get rid of their cigarettes. You have this. They have to be weaned off in order. And the last thing you want to do is is pull the rug out from somebody else without them being ready to take on another platform or some other something else to support them. They need other coping strategies because most of the woo that's being adopted is being adopted to reduce stress. It helps them feel like they have some control over a situation they have no control over. So we have to teach people those coping skills without the woo, how, how you cope without the woo in order to get them to the point where they will be willing to get rid of the woo. Like they can't get rid of it until they deal with the stress. Yeah, if somebody's standing on a platform, they're not going to get off of that platform unless they can be shown firsthand that there's this other stable platform on right. which they can be safely exactly. you know, and take a step toward. Um, so what about, uh, you know, I noticed, okay, so a lot of the approaches here, um, they're very rational and they're very, uh, you know, thoughtful. Um, what do you think about people with various personalities and some personalities are more analytical and uh, kind of logically minded. Other personalities are more on the uh, emotional side. And would you say that um, this would be something that, you know, these kinds of techniques are easier for uh, kind of a logically minded person, but an emotionally sort of minded uh, personality some personality varieties may have more difficulty uh, coming to these sorts of methods? Yeah, I mean, we now know, right, that there's actually in the brain, you know, there's such diversity and in how our brains function and some people experience the world in profoundly different ways because of the way their brain is structured. So if someone is experiencing a really heightened sense of spirituality and otherness out there that feels like a real presence to them, they're going to have a different journey to humanism than someone who's really clinical and lacks 
you know, imagination, I, you know, I, whatever it is. I mean, it, and neither of those approaches are bad ways of being. They're just different ways of being. And, you know, helping people, even people who, you know, maybe believe in fairies or something because they've seen them, you, you can still help them understand, you know, other forms of woo that they might have adopted that are holding them back from actually achieving whatever the objective is. You don't have to deny them their reality to help them come to reality. Yeah, I, I think in that's... In some cases, it might require a psychologist and medication, but for most people, you know, it's not an either-or, they can do both. And that's fine, as long as they do both. And the, the way I describe this in a lot of my talks is, if you've got a field that needs water, do you pray for rain or do you irrigate the field or do you do both? Right? The praying for rain is the supernatural solution. The irrigating the field is the humanist solution. But there's no reason, there's nothing that says you can't both pray and irrigate the field. And I really don't care if people are going to pray and irrigate the field. I only care if they only pray. Right? Because that's not, that they could die if they do that. Because if they don't get water on their field, their crop fails the village dies, right, because there's no food. So I only really care about the supernatural beliefs if they prevent real action that's really based in reality helping people solve their problem. That's when it becomes a problem. I think that we've also underserved um, people with um, different kinds of personalities. Right. Um, there's a lot of beauty and poetry and... Um, uh, wonder and awe and, and love and compassion in, in, in the, uh, in the humanist worldview as well, in the naturalist worldview. And we often don't really provide the kind of doorways into humanism that people with these sorts of, uh, interests and personalities could find appealing. Um, so I think that's part of it too. And that's why I support the Spiritual Naturalist Society is because you guys are providing an entry to people to a more naturalistic worldview who might, who will not, simply will not take an atheist journey. Well, the, um, the traditional atheist journey, yeah. Right, the traditional atheist journey. You're yeah. providing an entry point through spirituality practices to naturalism right. and to humanism through that the way you promote naturalism. Yeah, right? that's one function of the practices that we uh, that we do. Yeah, in addition to them um, having uh, genuine value for for how you right. would you know change your own exactly. psychology and such. But uh, exactly. the huge huge bonus of that, yeah, is that it it I think it appeals to a different audience. It appeals to a completely different audience. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So you know, but those it's not saying and. It's not saying that the the traditional angry atheist journey is not a valid journey. It's right. absolutely a valid journey for those people, but that's not the only journey that people yeah, take. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, more scarier because everybody's journey is different, and you know, but it, there's still some patterns that emerge, you know, and those patterns require their own communities to support them on that journey, wherever that journey takes them. That's great. I, I think that's a, a wonderful, I mean, we're actually near the end of our time. So uh, <laughs> these things always run way shorter than I, I would I would like them to be. But uh, um, I invite our listeners to go ahead and continue the conversation by commenting on our page that has this, uh, 
this episode in it. And um, thank you so much, Jen, for uh, joining us today. Uh, Jennifer Hancock, that's jen-hancock.com, uh, or Jen the Humanist, if you want to do a search for that. Or and, Humanist uh, Learning Systems, if you want. Oh, I'm know. sorry? Humanist Learning Systems for all the, the oh, learning yes. stuff. Okay. Uh, humanist Learning Systems. And uh, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to also uh, give a shout out to Jen and a big thank you because she was actually one of our first beta testers for a very, very, very early version of the course. Totally different than the course that we have now. At that time, it was just a pilot thing that had to do with um, historical roots of uh, spiritual practices for naturalists. And uh, now our course is much more about um, current uh, spiritual naturalist communities and, and the practices that underlie them and how you can find happiness and meaning in your life. But uh, Jen was one of the early people who had faith in the project that helped us get in the, moving in the right direction. So thank you, Jen. <laughs> cool. Yes, she has been very uh, supportive of the society in a lot of ways, including her writing, uh, writing articles for us. And so I, I really wish you the best and continuing all your work and, uh, and hope other people will will find you and find you helpful. Well, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jess. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Jay Forrest is our technical director. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.